Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. On a sunny Manchester afternoon in August 1996, a young Norwegian footballer made his debut. It was the 64th minute, and searching for a goal to level the match, the manager had turned to his bench. The substitution worked. A mere six minutes into his life as a Manchester United player, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer scored. It was a fitting start to a career in which he would become known as football or soccer's greatest super sub. In 1999, Solskjaer netted four times in 12 minutes as a substitute against Nottingham Forest. And it was from the bench that he scored perhaps the most famous goal in Manchester United's history, the injury time winner that captured the Champions League and the team's third trophy of that season. Presidential politics is not like soccer, though. There's no manager who can put on a substitute when the incumbent is tiring. With Joe Biden likely to run again, it could be a while until ambitious, younger Democrats get their shot at running for the highest office. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how strong is the Democratic bench? There's been no official announcement, but the mood music suggests Joe Biden will seek a second term. If he does run in 2024, and if he wins, he would be 86 by the time he leaves office. Part of Biden's appeal in 2020 was his electability, but that seems less assured now. Are Democrats making a mistake by not looking elsewhere? And who are the potential Democratic candidates waiting for their chance? With me this week to talk about whether President Joe Biden should seek re-election and also to discuss the strength of the Democratic Party's bench are Idris Kaloun in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard in New York. Charlotte, what's up in New York? I had two exciting things happen this week. One was that Idris and his wife, Alice Fullwood of Money Talks fame, were in New York, so I got to see them and have dinner with them with my husband, Dan. And then the second is that I moderated an event put on by our colleagues at Economist Impact on AI regulation, which was fascinating in and of itself. And it also prompted me to go back and listen to some of our Babbage episodes on AI and chatbots with Alec Ja and with Ludwig Siegele on ChatGPT and AI and its promise and perils. So I recommend that our listeners go check those out as well. Yeah, those are really good episodes. Idris, what's happening in the district? Uh, we have CPAC, the annual conservative conference uh, in town, or 
near town at least. So there, all the festivities are underway. Uh, Donald Trump is making an appearance there, I think, on Saturday. Uh, Ron DeSantis has given it a skip, but a lot of the Republicans who are hoping to be president, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, who hasn't announced, but who people think will run, is going to be there giving speeches, trying to impress the conservative activist community. So there's a vibrant primary on the Republican side underway, but I guess we're going to talk about why there isn't one on the Democratic side. CPAC's also one of the great places to spot colourful bow ties if you're into that sort of thing. It's very much a safe space for very preppy dressing. So um, I, you'll have a great time, Idris. Also, an interesting bookstore I, I normally find at CPAC. When I went to the one in Texas, they had some great T-shirts. Uh, Donald Trump is Superman in particular. The other thing I always find is the people at the don't trust the liberal media stand could not be more charming. So do say hi to them if you come across them. Okay. This week, we're going to be talking about Joe Biden, whether he should run again, and whether the Democrats have other people not called Joe Biden who would be good candidates were he to decide not to do so. And this episode was really prompted by a column that our colleague James Bennett wrote, a Lexington column, just after the midterms, arguing that Biden shouldn't run. I thought a good place to start would be to talk to our polling guru, data guru, Elliot Morris, about Joe Biden's approval ratings and what we can infer from them about his chances of winning in 2024. It's obviously a long way away from the election and the polls this early are not worth that much, but it's never too early to ask Elliot to cast his eye over polls. Our most recent Economist YouGov survey actually came out on Wednesday, has his approval at 42%, which isn't that bad, but his disapproval rating is at 51%. So a majority of adults in the United States disapprove of his job as president. Um, That's stable compared to previous weeks. So it's not gone up or down compared to the previous polls. Um, But just in case, just to make sure we're not looking at noise, I also like to look at the average of all other pollsters. And that's about the same too, about 43%. Uh, That puts him about where Donald Trump was, just as a comparison point, um, which I think is kind of surprising because we think of Donald Trump as sort of like the more uh, controversial figure, especially compared to Joe Biden's normal presidency. Uh, But yet here's the data saying they're about the same. And we're expecting him to announce some point, maybe even fairly soon, that he's going to run for re-election. How do his current approval ratings affect his chances of winning again were he to run? Well, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, right? The biggest caveat here is that it's early. I mean, extremely early. Uh, But getting that caveat out of the way. Biden's approval rating today puts him somewhere, I would say, around even odds to win the presidency, maybe a 50% chance. Um, And I get there by taking the comparable cases. So Biden's approval rating today is about equal to how Donald Trump, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter were doing. Each of those people lost their re-election bids for president. Um, But he's also doing about as well, you might say, as Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan, who we would think, I think, in this sort of popular retelling of history did particularly well and had popular mandates to rule after successfully winning. So that rating for Ronald Reagan, just by the way, that's during the 1983 recession. Maybe that's a reminder that there's lots of other factors going on in in this historical data that make it kind of noisy. And with your caveat that it's early, it is early. And so take these things with a pinch of salt. But how do the polls that pit him against a hypothetical Republican challenger, you know, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or someone else, how does he come out of those? Right. Well, look, if approval ratings aren't helpful predicting this early, then what we call the trial heat polls or these matchup polls <laughs> certainly are less useful. But again, as long as we're making our caveats for our listeners, the surveys um, this far out 
aren't uh, equipped to distinguish between one or two percentage points between uh, of an advantage for Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, for example. Um, so I wouldn't say either of them appear more electable than the other one. But I think what these surveys can do is prove to primary voters that a candidate um, could be electable in the future. So, you know, the most recent trial heat polls, including from from The Economist, show um, that Ron DeSantis probably has a, a larger lead than Donald Trump would. But, right, it's early, so that might change. Um, I, I think it is likely that the polls will continue to be circulated, though, among people who are sort of boosting DeSantis, and that would probably help his odds in a sort of feedback loop mechanism. And how about polls for Democrats who are not called Joe Biden? I mean, is it the case that pollsters just aren't really asking questions because the presumption is that Joe Biden will run again and that will have a, you know, that will squash other Democrats in in the race? Or can you say anything about how, you know, a Raphael Warnock or a Gretchen Whitmer or somebody like that might fare? In the small number of polls that we have, Joe Biden seems to do better than people who might run to replace him. Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg is sometimes included in these polls. And I actually haven't seen anything with with the governors, Whitmer or Newsom, in quite a while. Um, last year, they were looking to run about even with Biden. Uh, I think it's probably much better use of our time to think about how those potential sort of governor replacements did in their previous elections, what they might have to offer to certain types of voters, um, than, to, than to try to sort of predict um, how how they would do in the primary before. I, I think a political scientist might say, though, that because of polarization, almost all of these candidates are going to do roughly as well as you might think. The election's probably going to be pretty close. Um, on the issues, America has, has sort of seemed to tilt towards the Democrats in the popular vote for the past couple of decades, but there's differences between the candidates, and those differences make marginal differences. But in close elections, those marginal differences have big, big consequences. Um, So it's really, I think it's really anyone's game. And sticking with the Democrats just for a sec, so if polling isn't the way to look at non-Biden Democrats, can you pick a few for me who outperform what you'd expect a generic Democrat to do in in a race? Are Are there any Democrats who have a big enough profile at the moment, national profile, who do unexpectedly well for a Democrat where they stand? Uh, well, the biggest one that I would think of is the one you've already mentioned, um, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. She has beaten expectations in her recent re-election bids. She's done better than Joe Biden has, even during the same elections in Michigan. So I, I'd put her eye on that list. I think she would probably do about as well or maybe be even better. Um, and then the other and then the other candidates that election nerds like me like to think about um, are the Democrats from really red states who do much better than um, you would expect them to be for having the D next to their name. Those are people like Andy Bashir in Kentucky, um, John Bell Edwards, the governor of Louisiana. Um, people like this probably wouldn't win the Democratic nomination, right, just by virtue of their policy positions, the, thing, the, the stances they have to take to get them elected in deep red states. But if they were to win, they would probably do well, I would think. So, Charlotte, some listeners might be wondering why we're even discussing whether an incumbent first-term president should run again. Right. So the reason we're talking about this now is because Biden is likely to announce in April. He announced his campaign in 2019 in April 
His predecessors have often announced the launch of their re-election campaigns in April. Bill Clinton did so, for instance. So this is coming up very soon. And I'm really struck by some of the polling numbers on him. So not just among the general electorate, but among the people who voted for him in 2020, there is actually a pretty high approval rating, 81%. However, just 39% of the people who voted for him, so his supporters, think he should run again. That seems so damning to me. And the fact that he would have that mushy uh, a base of support seems problematic for him and for Democrats. What do you think, Idris? Yeah, Biden was never, even in 2020, the candidate that uh, elicited the most sort of hype and and fervor of support. He was the uh, candidate of last resort that Democrats collectively broke glass to uh, endorse and, and get behind to avoid running Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump, right? Um, that's why he's the president now. Democrats basically were so fearful that they would lose again that they picked the safest bet. And, you know, his age is showing. He's not nearly as gifted a communicator as he once was. I'd encourage anyone who uh, thinks otherwise to go and, and listen to his vice presidential debates, both with Paul Ryan and Sarah Palin. He's just a lot sharper and able to communicate in a way that he just simply isn't now. And his job as president is to basically communicate his positions to the American people. He's not particularly good at that. But, you know, the reason why he might run again is I think that there's this, again, Biden conceives of himself as, I think, above all, a sort of Trump buster. And you know, he sees his sort of God-given duty as denying that man uh, a seat in the White House. And he's, I think, people in the administration are similarly terrified of Kamala Harris being the standard bearer. And I think that if they had a vice president who was more inspiring and even more likely to to win rather than less, uh, they might be okay with an open primary. And I think the thing that is, and I think we're going to talk about this later, but what's keeping other Democrats from stepping into the ring is this feeling that every time a president has attracted a major primary challenge, um, it's always gone badly for them. How much of that is cause and effect? Uh, how much of that is just weak presidents drawing challengers? Uh, you know, I don't know. But I think that that taboo is keeping this field open. And so we're at a, a sort of uncomfortable equilibrium, but it's hard to imagine what will shift it one way or the other. It's kind of interesting because when you talk about a weak president, there are ways in which if you look at Biden's presidency, if someone else was selling it, you could argue as a really strong presidency, right? I mean, his assertion of American influence in the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and rallying NATO is really notable. If you look at the suite of packages that have passed Congress that we've discussed extensively on the show, the Infrastructure Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a climate bill, the CHIPS Act, one can take issue with any of these bills, but they certainly provide a lot for Biden to try to sell, right? And so that points, I think, really to just how severe that communication problem is that you just articulated, Idris, and that's not going to get solved, right? There's no political event that's going to happen that's going to make Biden a better communicator. And so I think that is part of what makes this just feel like a really troubling trajectory for Democrats. I think casting doubt on whether Biden should run again and acknowledging that his presidency has been pretty successful are not contradictory. I mean, I, I think both those things can be true at the same time, right? He has got a lot done, I think, particularly relative to expectations, given how narrow his majority was in the House and the Senate in the two years when Democrats had majorities. But at the same time, I mean, as you say, Charlotte, he's 
not a great communicator. As you say, Idris, his campaigning is less good than it was. And people tend to forget that in 2020, he had to do almost no campaigning, right? Because that was an election run during COVID-19. So it was a very strange election in many ways, and I think not a good indicator of how Biden would be on the campaign trail in 2024, because there wasn't really a campaign trail. And he will be significantly older. I mean, were he to win re-election, he'd be 86 when he left office. It's hard to talk about this without sounding disrespectful. And I think James Bennett did a very good job of doing that in, in his Lexington. But one way of thinking about it is that a lot of Americans know somebody who's in their early 80s. And though they love that person and admire them and think they have many fine qualities, they probably wouldn't want them to be president. James also wrote in his column, which I thought was a nice way of putting it, that denying himself a second term would be a historic act of leadership, a demonstration of his faith in democracy and his own best chance to receive the respect and honor he's earned. I also think that, you know, if Donald Trump wins, he'll be 82 by the time his presidency is over. And for a country as, you know, America's not the youngest country in the world, but it is significantly younger than that. There's a lot of vibrancy still within the economy, within, you know, there are a lot of very clever people. I think that if if voters are faced with another rematch between the two, they would wonder, is this really the best that we can do. And there has to be, I think, many people would think uh, someone smarter, someone more agile, someone better equipped to deal with the intense demands of the presidency than those two again. Incidentally, Idris, if Joe Biden does run again, I think your idea of his slogan being Trump buster would be a good one and is sort of in keeping with the slightly 1980s uh, retro vibe of his presidency and his candidacy. We'll go back to the most recent time when a president chose not to seek re-election in a moment. But first, thank you to everyone who's already sent in questions for our special Q&A episode that we're going to do in a few weeks. You've still got time to email us with anything you'd like us to explain. If you've got a question about what's going on in America, about the economy, about Congress, the Supreme Court, or perhaps you're eager to discover Charlotte's patented method of preparing for a quiz or how often Idris clogs, then send those questions to podcasts at economist.com and please use checks Q&A as the subject line. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I want to speak to you of peace in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Speaking to the nation from the Oval Office in March 1968, Lyndon Johnson announced a de-escalation in the Vietnam War. We are reducing, substantially reducing, the present level of hostilities. And we are doing so unilaterally and at once. Johnson had prepared two versions of the speech. One focused solely on Vietnam. The other, and the one he eventually chose to read, had a kicker at the end. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Only a handful of Johnson's inner circle had known he wasn't going to seek re-election. The timing, though, made sense. And now, three weeks after the offensive began, the firing still goes on from here on the new side of the city across the Perfume River to the old side, the Citadel. That January, in the Tet Offensive, North Vietnamese troops had rampaged through the south. 
the onslaught had exposed the fallacy that victory was near. Johnson said he wasn't running again so that he could focus on ending the war without the distraction of electioneering. And Vietnam had made him deeply unpopular. Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War in mass marches, rallies and demonstrations. Central Park is the starting point for the parade to the U.N. building. The estimated 125,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests and nuns. Makeup and costumes were bizarre. It was becoming doubtful that he'd even have the backing of his own party. In early March, he'd barely beaten the anti-war senator Eugene McCarthy at the New Hampshire primary. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. A few days after that, Johnson's great enemy, Robert Kennedy, entered the race. I do not run for the presidency merely to oppose any man, but to propose new policies. It's easy to think that Johnson simply read the tea leaves and jumped before he was pushed. But the president had almost announced the decision two months earlier in his State of the Union, before the primary setback and before RFK's candidacy. It's reported that in 1967, he told some aides he wouldn't run, before the Tet Offensive. At that time, he'd said it was because of his health. Johnson had had a massive heart attack in 1955, and the men in his family tended to die young. Thank you for listening. Good night, and God bless all of you. Johnson probably wasn't going to win, but his health worries meant he probably wasn't up for the fight anyway. It's rare for a politician to give up political power voluntarily. No president has chosen not to run for a second term since Lyndon Johnson. If Joe Biden is healthy and sees a path to re-election, the temptation for him to run again will probably be too great. Charlotte, so George Washington and Thomas Jefferson established the principle or the precedent that a president would only serve two terms and then step aside. But that wasn't written into law until 1951 in the 22nd Amendment. There have been several presidents, though, who decided to only serve one term and and then step aside. Yeah, of those, I'm struck, I guess, most by Calvin Coolidge. I was reading a bit about these different presidents before today's show. And in his biography, he wrote that he was, quote, relieved of the pretensions and delusions of public life. And that was part of why he didn't want to run again, which seems like a pretty good reason to me uh, and very clearly stated. So Coolidge was one, Truman was another one. And both of them had been vice president and then became president when the president died. So sort of inherited the presidency, served a term. And so in a sense, They'd already done two terms by the time they stood down, but they did both voluntarily surrender power. Same with Lyndon Johnson also. Yeah, the other thing about Truman and LBJ is as Truman was worn out by dealing with the Korean War, just as LBJ was struggling with Vietnam. So that seems to be something that is a common thread, at least among those two. And with Biden, of course, he is has to date been, I think, done very well in establishing America's role in Ukraine. But as we've discussed in last week's show... That's going to be increasingly up for debate, I think. So that's another factor that may well play into his success. Yeah, you might think that for Biden, almost the opposite holds true, right? He might want to stick around to see support for Ukraine continue. So it's kind of the opposite to the LBJ or or, or Truman precedent. 
So Truman also had a, a primary challenger, right, which I think made the decision easier. I think that uh, incumbent presidents never like to lose, but they certainly don't want to endure the humiliation of losing a primary challenge. Both Truman and, and Johnson had to deal with their own unpopularity, which I think increased the chance that they would lose. And if you remember before the midterms, you know, uh, there was a lot of talk about a primary challenge or Biden stepping aside. And the assumption was that the uh, loss would be so overwhelming and so complete and the risk of Donald Trump coming back into the White House would be so severe that Biden would, for the good of the country, have to step aside. Now, I think Trump's intervention saved him there. The midterms didn't turn out to be nearly as, as good for Republicans as expected. And that had the effect of, I think, completely killing the discussion about whether or not Biden uh, ought to have a, a primary challenger. It's now quieted down. And I don't see, like I was saying earlier, any sign that that equilibrium is going to be dislodged from from the current one. Basically, uh, you know, every Democrat seems to have internalized the conventional wisdom that if there is a primary challenger, um, that basically guarantees that Biden will lose. And no one wants to be the person who's held up as responsible for giving the White House back to the Republicans. That seems like a potentially terrible strategy to me, right? You can see how you might learn that lesson from history and interpret things in that way. But the result would be that Biden would get absolutely no practice campaigning before finding himself in a matchup with Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis again. That doesn't seem like a good plan to me. Yeah. The thing that will save him is polarization, right? I mean, there are so few voters left who are going to be swayed by the sort of inability to communicate that are going to be swayed by the sort of lackluster campaigning. Close to half the country thinks that Trump is unpalatable and is never going to vote for him ever. And the other half feels kind of similarly about the Democratic candidate and is going to vote for whoever the Republican is. So ultimately, the effects of, of this can be marginal. Now, in a, in a country where very frequently 50-50 elections, of course, it still matters. But there's just a high floor for how any candidate would do. A generic, like the worst possible Republican candidate would still probably get 45% of the vote in today's America. Yes, in addition to those 20th century presidents who decided not to seek another term, the 19th century presidents who did so, Rutherford B. Hayes, James Polk, James Buchanan, all seem to have just not fancied another four years in the White House. So that sort of approach to power, which Calvin Coolidge also shared, has really gone out of style. One reason why lots of people assume that Joe Biden will run again is because there's a view widely shared that the Democrats don't have a very deep bench. There aren't lots of candidates who could be good presidents waiting in the wings. We'll be back in a moment to examine that assumption and try and figure out whether it's true or not. Idris, you've been thinking a bit about Democrats who are not called Joe Biden and might make plausible presidential candidates. Well, one person with a good familiarity for uh, Democrats who are on the bench who are about to make it a prime time is Liz Smith. Uh, she's a Democratic strategist who's best known for being a senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg in his 2020 presidential campaign, which was unexpectedly successful. She was a big part of his success in, among other things, winning Iowa, uh, if you remember that many, many years ago, it feels like. And I talked to her about what the Democratic bench looks like now. 
We have a tremendous Democratic bench. The people who come to mind who would be able to launch presidential campaigns tomorrow are the people who have already run for president, right? They already have that muscle memory. So you have people like Kamala Harris, like Pete Buttigieg, like Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. Um, But then behind them, you have people who haven't run before, aren't necessarily household names, but they've had big jobs and won big races. And those are people like governors, Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan, J.B. Prisker from Illinois, Gavin Newsom from California. And then you've got U.S. senators like Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock, who just ran really, really impressive campaigns in the midterms where they defied historical trends and were able to come out on top. So one of the criticisms of the Democratic Party under Barack Obama was that it had this, you know, incredibly charismatic man at the top of the ticket, but uh, not as deep of a sort of bench of who might succeed him afterwards. You know, the Democratic Party reverted to uh, Hillary Clinton, a member of a familiar political family. And there was a feeling that the sort of vibrancy, the ability to find really talented politicians who might one day sort of succeed uh, someone like Obama had had withered a bit. I wonder if you think that that is still a, a problem in, in the Democratic Party or whether you reject that framing. You know, some have pointed to the fact that Joe Biden is currently 80 years old. A lot of the leadership in the Senate and the House is, is old. You know, is this a party that still values, in your opinion, young and talented politicians? It is. And it would be great to see our leadership look a little bit younger and look a little bit more like the future. But I have never felt more optimistic about the state of our bench than I do right now. What I think would be really great is to see the Biden team in 2024 sort of use these next generation members of Congress, these next generation mayors, governors, senators, and use them Fan them out across the country, fan them out across the media to show the power of our bench and to show that we are still a party of the future and the next generation because we do have a lot of talent, very diverse talent, racially, ethnically, religiously, in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of regional diversity, and we should be leaning on them in the upcoming years. I'm curious about how you think someone goes from up and coming and and promising to presidential caliber. And you worked closely with Pete Buttigieg on on his campaign. He's probably someone who immediately comes to mind as as being able to have engineered a a path for himself where it seemed harder for other people. But what does that look like? How how does someone sort of uh, go from this sort of young, uh, promising position to the path that that he's taken? Right. I got to see a really up close how overnight someone can go from being someone no one has ever heard of to being a serious presidential candidate. And, you know, four years ago in 2019, if you and I had been having this conversation and I had mentioned Pete Buttigieg as the potential winner of the Iowa caucuses, you probably would have laughed me off this podcast. Um, but he does provide a model for both Democrats and Republicans looking to maybe launch long shot dark horse campaigns for president. And how we were able to do it was we saw that there was sort of a void in the market for um, a younger voice, a voice that was from outside Washington, um, someone who didn't come with a lot of the battle scars and baggage that you te- typically have with members of Congress or U.S. senators, but someone who could help 
turn down the temperature of Washington. Um, he was someone who came from the middle of the country, had to reach out to conservative voters in his elections, and knew how to speak to Democrats, yes, but also Republicans and independents. And it was a lane that clearly existed in that campaign. Ultimately, Joe Biden ended up winning that lane. But what I would say is for any candidate who's sort of looking to come out of nowhere, it's important to analyze where you fit into the puzzle of the election that you're running in. And do you meet the moment? Do you have the qualities that voters are looking for? Are you the antidote to what people um, think of as the problems in politics today? And that's largely what we did with Pete. And we made him, of course, extremely accessible to the media so that um, it would be extremely hard for voters in early states not to hear of him. Um, but it was definitely a combination of him having natural skills, him meeting the moment, and people being very, very receptive to the message and profile that he offered. So it's replicable. You don't have to speak five languages to do it. <laughs> Technically, I think it's eight languages, it? but oh, okay. yes. You, you, no, you, you don't. And again, it's about meeting the moment. And one thing that both he and Joe Biden offered was a real antidote to the Donald Trump, um, the Donald Trump style of politics, which was all chaos, all drama, all the time. Neither Joe Biden nor Peter people who are, you know, yelly, screamy or dramatic. And they did offer uh, a more toned down version of politics. So there should be, I think, an obvious answer to who is next in line in the Democratic sweepstakes. And that's Vice President Kamala Harris. But she she's often passed over in a lot of these discussions. Why do you think that is? I would say that one of the reasons why sometimes she gets overlooked in these conversations is because she has a really tough day job. Oftentimes when you're vice president, you take on a lot of thoughtless tasks and you get tagged with all the negatives um, of the president that you work for and none of the positives. Um, she's excelled when she's gone out there and spoken from the heart on issues like abortion and, and women's health care decisions. I think she just need, needs to find a few more areas like that where she can really connect with voters and show um, that she's an invaluable voice in the national discussion. And so the more that they can sort of elevate her and get her out there, the better. And I think that we will see her playing a pretty strong role in Joe Biden's reelection. And that could be her opportunity to shine. So Idris, Liz Smith's list of candidates who are not Joe Biden, who are ready to go because they've run for president before, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris. I don't think she mentioned Bernie Sanders, but he'd presumably be in there. That's not a list that I find particularly thrilling, maybe with the exception of Buttigieg, who I remember seeing campaigning in Iowa in 2020 and is a genuinely impressive politician and someone who's prepared to go on you know, Fox News and debate the hosts. Let's start, though, by talking about Kamala Harris. I mean, Liz Smith gave what I thought was quite a polite answer there. One of the reasons why there's so much discussion about Joe Biden's candidacy and who might be the nominee if it were not Joe Biden is I think it's widely assumed and correctly assumed among politicos that Kamala Harris would not be good at the top of the ticket. And there's plenty of polling to back that up as well, right? Yeah, I think the fear is another rerun of the Hillary Clinton uh, scenario in which you have a sort of coronation of someone who feels like they, they deserve the, the top of the ticket by right. Um, you know, they've done the right jobs. They have the right resume. Um, 
but it, it would not go well. You know, they fear losing to Trump again. And I think that is why we maybe are seeing Biden staying in is the sort of lack of confidence in, 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 in Kamala Harris, which maybe it, it springs from fair sources or unfair sources. I think it's remarkable that despite the decades and age that are uh, between her and the president, uh, that both have fairly similar communication issues sometimes. I mean, the sort of inability to to express um, what they're trying to say sometimes. And I think there there is a difference, though. Biden still comes off as sort of an empathetic, slightly doddering, grandparental-like figure, whereas Kamala Harris doesn't have quite that excuse. And so, uh, you know, the way that it comes off is slightly detached. And, uh, and I think people have just bad, bad memories of the 2020 campaign that she ran um, and don't want to see that happen again. Yeah, so then the question is, who else? So I, I agree that Kamala Harris is just not a good candidate. I don't think it's that she has a tough job as vice president, though that may be true. She's just not a good candidate. But then who else, right? So Gavin Newsom is someone who clearly is ambitious. He won re-election by a huge margin. I can't see him making much headway outside of California. America's not California. Whitmer, I think, is is really interesting and, and impressive. I also like Buttigieg, but he has this problem now with this train derailment in Ohio when he's had to go out and represent the transportation department there and has not done so that elegantly. And Ohio is an important state. Other people bouncing around. I mean, Bernie Sanders, I have to give credit to him because he has a book out. And when you think about the title of other books that politicians publish when they're preparing for a presidential run, there are things like The Audacity of Hope or Mike Pence has a book which is titled, apparently, unironically, So Help Me God. And Sanders has a book out, the title of which is It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, which sounds like a self-help book for people who are aggressively grumpy, which is his brand. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't really see him as leading the way here. So I think maybe Whitmer, I guess. I, what do you think, John? So one of my frustrations with this discussion is I think there are rather a lot of good Democratic candidates. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, uh, impresses me, and she outperformed in her last election. I think Raphael Warnock, the Democratic senator from Georgia, is a really impressive public speaker, Not perhaps not surprisingly for somebody who's a you know preacher and preaches at Martin Luther King's old church. Then there are a few... Democratic governors who do well in red states like Roy Cooper in North Carolina, Andy Bashir in Idris's home state, Kentucky, John Bell Edwards, who Elliot mentioned earlier. So I actually think there's quite a lot of talent there. I think one of the difficulties you see is that the names that get mentioned again and again are people who maybe would appeal to the left-leaning part of the Democratic Party, might do quite well in an early primary, but would not do well will not do so well in a in a nationwide election. So I think the Democrats have kind of got a couple of problems here, personnel-wise. A, I think Joe Biden is you know, sort of blocking the talent pipeline to some extent. And B, I think that you've got this layer of candidates who ran last time, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, who in turn seem to me to be blocking some more promising names. But politics is fluid, right? People can break through. I guess I would just say that things happen that are unexpected in politics all the time. I think it is good to weigh out all these different potential candidates and what their merits are because because who knows, LBJ dropped out really unexpectedly, right? It caused all kinds of tumult within the party that was then exacerbated by broader national tumult in 1968. There are just a lot of unknowns. 
And John, I think you're largely right that we can be distracted by the people who ran last time and weren't particularly compelling, but there are a lot of other people in the wings and one of them may emerge. So I'm holding out a little hope that this will be a more dynamic race than we at the moment think it it probably will be, that there are things that will occur that will shake it up in interesting ways and ways that probably are are good for the electoral system and good for the country. But that's my sort of sliver outside hope. I, I acknowledge it's not the most likely outcome, but I think it would be, I think it'd be an interesting and good thing. Well, let's hope you're right. Before I let you guys go, as is customary on Checks and Balance, I have a quiz for you. Question one. In 1967, Lyndon Johnson, who we talked about earlier, signed an anti-nepotism act into law against the Nepo babies, which would stop public officials hiring relatives. Some think that that act was a response to JFK hiring his brother Robert. To what position in his administration? He was the attorney general. Hmm, well done. He was the attorney general. When challenged over the appointment, JFK reportedly joked that he just wanted to give Bobby a little legal practice before he becomes a lawyer. That is funny. Don't know how that would go down now. Well, Jared was in charge of everything. So, you know, legal practice is just uh, is, is less than, you know, Middle East peace and the border and everything else. Yeah. Nothing about Jared Kushner's tenure did he interpret as practice. It was just deploying his skill and mastery. Anyway, go on. I will. Question two. RFK resigned his post to run as senator, not for Massachusetts, where he lived and his brother had been senator, but for which state? Was he in New York? New York is the correct answer. Good. I should have said that with more authority. Well, you said it fast, which is also important. He was (laughs) accused of being a carpetbagger, but he still beat the incumbent Republican. So that honors even, one point each. Congratulations. I think the quiz is too easy if you both got a question right, is my only concern. We might have to change things a bit for next week. Seems just right to me. (laughs) Uh, I'm happy with it. Oh, I just remember we won't have a quiz next week because we have our special episode about Lake Mead. The Economist's West Coast correspondent, Erin Braun, is going to be investigating the case of a mysterious body found in a barrel at Lake Mead, which is on the Arizona-Nevada border. It's a tale that involves climate change, Las Vegas mafiosi, and politics, and we think you'll like it. That's it for us this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble, Nicola Rufas, and Timo Sela are our sound engineers. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. And we would, of course, love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already subscribe. The address to do that is economist.com slash checks pod. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.